The past 12 months have been rough on the travel industry. So how do we keep on in year two of the pandemic? For this year, I, I'm ready for nothing to happen, but we're going to push villa rentals, which is a great way to travel and to protect yourself. Coming up, Steve Perillo tells us how his tour company is anticipating a gradual return to travel abroad. New York Times reporter Tariro Mazuzewa looks at travel industry trends and what restless travelers tell her they're planning. If you think about road trips, they give you so much control in a way that you don't have if you're getting on a flight. And the Raven Master at the Tower of London describes the nightly ceremony he's eager to resume when it's safe to reopen again. The Tower of London clock chimes. The chief yellow warder stands still. He raises his Tudor bonnet and says, God preserve Queen Elizabeth. Everybody answers, Amen. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's been a whole year since the first serious pandemic-related lockdown started, and it's still unclear what's ahead for the travel industry. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Steve Perillo runs a tour business that in a normal year sends tens of thousands of Americans to Italy. We'll check to hear how Steve's faring a little bit later in the hour. And a reporter from the New York Times updates us on impacts to the travel industry and how travelers are adapting. Let's start with an interview we did just before the pandemic closures began with the Raven Master at the Tower of London. The Tower's been protecting Britain for almost a thousand years and it's home to the crown jewels. But the latest coronavirus upsurge in England meant closing it to the public again after allowing limited admissions for a while last year. It's said to be a very old and very important English legend. As long as there are ravens living at the Tower of London, the Tower will stand. But if they ever leave, the fate of the kingdom itself might be in jeopardy. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves to explore this legend with one of the ceremonial guards who actually lives in the Tower of London. While they're often called the Beef Eaters, Christopher Scaife has the title of Yeoman Warder, and he's been given the special duty of caring for the seven ravens that roost on the tower grounds. Seven large, hungry, loud, and well-pampered birds Christopher joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about his unusual duties at the Tower of London. And he writes a book about it. It's called The Raven Master. Christopher, welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, by the way, I've, I've read different accounts, six or seven ravens. How many ravens are there at the Tower? We have six by royal decree. Uh, but actually, I have eight at the moment, so I have two spare just in case. <laughs> Good to have a spare when you're guarding those precious ravens. So tell us first, for those of us who don't know, what's the Tower of London? The Tower of London is a palace and fortress that was built during the period of William the Conqueror in around about 1078. And as he went around England, he built fortresses for his lords and his dukes. And one of those fortresses, of course, was the Tower of London. It was built on the northern side of the River Thames, guarding the River Thames from any other invasion that should come up that way. Now, uh, a thousand years later, uh, we still have the Tower of London, and you are one of the yeoman warders. Most people would call you a beefeater. What's the yeoman warder? The yeoman warder is one of 37 uh, male and female uh, yeoman warders, or, or commonly known as beefeaters, that live and work within the walls of the Tower of London. Lots of people don't actually realize that the tower is our home, and, and the arrow loops that you look at, there are bedrooms and our living rooms, and so we live and work there. We are the guardians, if you like, of the Tower of London. You know, as a tourist, you go to the Tower of London and it's, you know, you open in the morning and then everybody crushes in there and it's just a historical um, theme park and it's just a lot of fun. And then at the end of the day, you lock it up and, what, 120 people actually call the Tower home. 
Uh, you could, you've got a church service there. You've got your family there. What's it like? Yeah, we have our own doctor on site, our own chaplain. Uh, there's the yeoman warders and their families that live and work inside the walls of the Tower of London. And of course, when the public leave in the evening time, the Tower then becomes ours. And, and our small children, if we have any small children, which we do, you know, the Tower becomes their playground. And you see them running around and playing on their scooters and on their bikes. And it's just a wonderful atmosphere. We have a great community there. We even have our own pub on site, which is very exclusive. You can only get an invite if you actually know a yeoman warder. But it has Whoa. loads and loads of memorabilia in there. Whoa, that is cool. I'm going to put that on my list. I want to go to the pub after hours in the Tower of London. You know, one thing we can do where we, you can feel kind of special is go to the changing of, what is it called, the changing of the keys? The ceremony of the keys. Yeah. Tell us about that. The ceremony of the keys is, is a tradition that's been going on for century upon century. And actually what it is, it's the closing down of the Tower of London each night. It takes place at 10 p.m. and the soldiers come out, they guard the chief young warder as he goes around the tower, closing all the gates. And many, many years ago, we would be ushering lots of people that had no reason to be in the tower outside of the town, just pushing them all out. And so that he's afforded with a, a guard to help him close the gate. And at 10 p.m., the Tower of London clock chimes, the chief young warder stands still, he raises his Tudor bonnet and he says, God preserve Queen Elizabeth. Everybody answers, Amen. And so it's really our way of saying goodnight to the world. We lock ourselves in. And from my experience, it's pretty straightforward for a tourist to go online and make a reservation and actually be there for that ceremony. Yes, of course. You can go online. You can go onto the Historic Royal Palace's website, book online. If you're planning your journey here, plan in advance because there is a waiting list to go on it. Mm -hmm. uh, so do plan in advance. But it is free of charge. It's you free. do not have to pay for the fun of coming to watch the Ceremony of the Keys. Ah, that's a magic experience if you have the opportunity. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Christopher Scaife, the yeoman warder or a beef eater at the historic Tower of London. Christopher writes about his duties caring for Britain's most famous birds in his book, The Raven Master, My Life with the Ravens at the Tower of London. Christopher posts on Facebook and on Twitter. He's at ravenmaster1. Our phone number is 877 Michael's calling in from Houston. Michael, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me, Rick. Yeah, do you have a question for Christopher? Uh, yes, Christopher. I've uh, seen research by a uh, wildlife biologist at the University of Washington, and it proved that uh, crows, and I assume ravens, can not only recognize faces, they remember faces. And they're supposed to be some of the very intelligent birds. So I was wondering if you could tell us about any instances you've seen of the high intelligence of the ravens. I actually work with uh, students from London, Queen Mary University, and we're on a three-year project looking at a cognitive behaviour of ravens. And we're looking at self-awareness at the moment. Scientific research has actually shown that ravens, uh, the way that they solve problems and, and redo problems, are the same brain capacity, really, as a four- to six-year-old child and almost as clever as primates as well. So they are right at the top of the spectrum when it comes to bird intelligence. I see myself as an observationist, so I study and look at the birds all the time, and they do some really, really interesting stuff that you would never expect a bird to do. And what's a good example of that, Christopher? Well, they are thieves to start off with. They, they watch what other birds are doing. They can pass on information. Uh, they remember faces for life, for good and bad reasons as well. Uh, our ravens have developed how to go through the bins, take out the best food. 
Some of them lay on their backs and play dead. They're playful. One of them has a, a stick that it plays with. So they're, they're just doing all sorts of stuff. So in your book, The Raven Master, you even lay out, they have their own personalities from your observation. Yeah, over the years, I've spent a lot of time with ravens and I've been watching them. And although I don't anthropomorphize them, they do have very similar traits to humans. And, and uh, I explain in the book that they have emotions. I've seen them with happiness and sadness and, and pain and excitement and all the emotions that we have as humans, ravens actually have as well. Mm. And on my social media pages, what I try to do is when I take photographs of them, I try to capture the emotion of that raven at that particular time. Wow. Hey, Michael, thanks for your call. That's, that was very interesting to tie that in with crows. Right. Well, thanks, thanks again uh, right. to both of you. Superstition or legend decree. Should these ravens ever leave the tower, the tower will crumble. Well, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Scaife. He serves as a yeoman warder or beef eater at the historic Tower of London, and he is the Raven Master. That's the name of his book. So just very briefly, Christopher, why do we have the ravens at the tower? Where, where does that, what does that go back to? The stories that we tell about the ravens at the Tower of London date back to a period of Charles II. In what century would that be? We don't know our, our British history. Around about 1660, around about that period of time. Okay, so three, four hundred years ago. Yeah. And so uh, the royal astronomer at the time, a man by the name of John Flamsteed, had a telescope on top of the White Tower. It was, of course, one of the tallest buildings in London. All the ravens were flying around and settling around the turrets. Uh, The royal astronomer was really annoyed because they interfered with his calculations. So he went down, so legend tells us, and spoke to the king, said, Squire, can I get rid of these confounded ravens? And the king said, yes, of course you can. Until someone turned round and said, should the ravens leave the Tower of London, will crumble into dust and a great harm will befall your kingdom. So he decided to keep six ravens there by royal decree. Because that one mystical person, sort of like, beware the Ides of March, came up to him and said, you better not lose your ravens. Yes. And the king bought it. Wow. Okay. We're just about out of time, but I want to quickly get some answers from you. But what do the ravens eat? Uh, They eat a wonderful diet of mice, rats, chicks, rabbits, quail, and biscuits soaked in blood. Now, do they fly free or do they have their wings clipped? No. Uh, nowadays, if you come to the Tower of London and visit, uh, you have to look up on the rooftops. Many of the ravens at the Tower of London now are free-flying, and they stay there because they want to, rather than being forced to stay there. Do you get imposters coming in wanting the good life, and you've got to say, no, you're not the chosen? Not at the moment. On the eastern side of, of uh, the UK, we don't have ravens, although they are becoming much more prevalent around the UK, but they haven't got into London as so yet. So they, they could fly away if they wanted to, but they know life is good within the walls of the tower. Yep, and, uh, you know, in my book I describe how I actually try to keep them there. I haven't always got it right, but mm-hmm. most of the time I've got it right nowadays. And then do they mate? Is it like just with each other, or, or that seems like a small circle to look for your mate, or how do you make sure that they procreate? You know, ravens pair off for life, male and female, although it doesn't have to be male and female. Uh, females can pair off or males can pair off for companionship, and they do that in the wild as well. But we actually have two ravens on the outside of the Tower of London who produce ravens for us and for the future. Is there a, a raven graveyard at the Tower? Yes, we have a raven memorial at the Tower of London. It's near the middle drawbridge, if you look over and you can see the names on there. But actually, I haven't updated it since 2006. And the reason for that is I, I want to celebrate the ravens' lives rather than commemorate their, their deaths. But uh, yeah, the, the ravens, when they do sadly pass, are buried at the Tower of London somewhere.
Yeah. Oh, that's nice. This has been fascinating, Christopher. We've been talking with Christopher Scaife. And Christopher is a yeoman warder. His, uh, his duty is the Raven Master. And his book is The Raven Master, My Life with the Ravens at the Tower of London. Christopher, you're blessed to be able to call the Tower of London home. And while it's, we see it when it's mobbed with the public, you live there with your family and with the ravens. When you're there when it's quiet, after hours, what's it like that you particularly appreciate? It's, it's, it's magical, to be honest with you. It's, it's one of the most enjoyable parts that I have. You know, as the Raven Master, I, I spend a lot of early mornings and late nights wandering around the tower on my own, looking at the ravens. And it's just this little quiet oasis in the, the metropolis of London. You know, nearly nine million people live in London and in the heart, the very heart, the beating heart, there's just this little place and all you can hear is just the odd siren going past. Beautiful. Well, I hope to see you next time I'm in London and Christopher, best wishes with your work, keeping those ravens well and happy so that we have the Tower of London for another thousand years. Thank you very much indeed and you're more than welcome any time. It looks like Christopher needs to update his Ravens Memorial. Just before Christmas, Merlina, the Queen of the Ravens, went missing and is feared to have met her demise. The British press framed it as a possible omen for the United Kingdom. We have links to Christopher's book, The Raven Master, in our show notes at ricksteves.com radio. How pandemic closures impact our future travels. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we've been thinking about and dreaming about our future travels as soon as it's safe to do so. And not just where to go and when, but what will it be like? What changes can we expect as a result of the pandemic? And how long might those changes last? Tariro Muzuzewa is a travel reporter for the New York Times who's been asking the same questions. She also writes about how travel intersects with race, gender, and the environment. She joins us now to explore the benefits of imagining our future travels and what travel might look like when we're all back on the road. Toriro, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about this. Yeah, well, this has been a crazy tough time for the travel industry, 2020, 2021. You've been looking into this. Just uh, how bad has it been? How, how has this impacted the tourism industry, which is it's a giant industry in good times? It is a huge industry and, you know, everybody from cruise ships and hotels and restaurants and airlines has really felt the hurt of the pandemic. I want to say it's something like 40% of all travel jobs have just disappeared, you know, and I think that was just that number is from November. That's how many jobs were lost in the travel industry. And that's a lot of people to think about. I want to, I believe that's 3.5 million positions mm. just completely gone. Mm -hmm. And I'm impressed there's that much surviving even when you think about it, because who's traveling? I haven't, I mean, some people have to travel, but I haven't been on an airplane or in a hotel for a year now. Right. You know, there are people who have been going on road trips, going on small trips that allowed them to stay close to home, mm -hmm. and a few people traveling for work, but that's nowhere near what the volume was like before the pandemic, before you had millions of business travelers going everywhere, leisure travelers of all kinds. So solo travelers, families traveling, um, young travelers, nomadic travelers, all of that has just either completely disappeared for the time mm -hmm. being or been cut down significantly. 
So I guess there's a few sectors that are doing okay. For example, my publisher does mostly guidebooks, you know, my guidebook to France or Norway or Italy. Nobody's buying that right now, but what's uh, selling relatively well for them are, are road tripping guidebooks for people who are just hitting the road here in the United States. That's the, if you really got to travel, that's probably the way people are going. Oh, absolutely. People, we know that people want to travel, right? Just because they can't do it right now doesn't mean they don't want to do it. There is a huge appetite to get out there and to get outside and to just like get out of your house. And, you know, if you think about road trips, they give you so much control in a way that you don't have if you're getting on a flight. You know, if I'm renting a car or getting in my own car out of the driveway, I can decide who's coming with me, who's sitting next to me, right? I can decide where I'm stopping along the way. Do I want to take that detour? Do I want to drive past it? I can clean my surfaces myself. I just have a better sense of control, but also I can go far or I can stay close to home. And I think there's a lot of comfort in that for people. And so much about whenever you go out to eat or go on a little trip or, or a hike or whatever, a lot of it is you're, you're going to relax. And if you can't be relaxed and comfortable, you're going to go through all the motions and, and it's not going to be a rewarding experience. I notice that just even when I go out to eat. If I go out to eat in a place that doesn't have uh, an opportunity to sit comfortably outdoors and have our you know social distance, I'm just not enjoying myself. It's just not comfortable and I'm not likely to do it again. Our home studio guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Tariro Muzuzewa. Tariro started writing about the effects of the travel shutdowns for the New York Times last March. She's also written articles on how the pandemic is changing travel this year and encouraging readers to dream big about where they might want to go when it's safe to travel again. We have a link to her articles with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, let's look ahead, Tariro, and think, let's assume end of 2021, things are looking really good. We come out of this uh, horrible time for the travel industry for a couple of years, but then we get back into some kind of normalcy. What kind of changes do you think are going to be there for the industry after nearly two years of, of no revenue? You know, like I said, we know that so many people want to travel, and that's apparent from the number of people who are booking trips in the later part of the year, people are booking cruises. You know, I can't imagine going on one myself (laughs) this year, but a lot of people are booking those. A lot of people are booking big dream vacations, right? Like those trips that they would have put off for years and years are the ones they've said, I'm going to do it next year. I'll do it next year. Those are the trips that people are already booking and looking forward to. And we know that looking forward to something can really help you cope through a difficult time. So we're definitely seeing that. And, you know, on the practical side of things, just the logistics of getting from one place to another, I think people should expect to see changes in the experience, right? So when you get to the airport, those plexiglass dividers are probably here to stay for a little while. You're probably still going to have to wear your mask, even if you've been vaccinated, at least for a while. Um, And you'll still have to distance. So all that signage in the airport is still going to be there. And you'll, you know, I, I think those kinds of things are here to stay with us for a while. But on the upside, these airlines and the train companies and the tour operators and the hotels, they all want you back. So I think people should expect to see some amount of wooing, right? Like, come back to us, we'll give you a good deal. But also, like, a little bit more, um, a bit, I guess, you know, better treatment in a way, right? Like, we've seen these cancellations disappear, cancellation fees 
more flexibility. So if you need, they'll absolutely. We, we, we'll, we'll demand more flexibility because the future is less predictable. Absolutely. And I think people should expect to, to have that. You know, you wrote a, a fascinating article in the New York Times. It's called Nine Ways the Pandemic Will Change Travel in 2021. And I'd like to just go through these points with you and learn a little more. Um, you're talking about proof of vaccination. I remember when I was a, a young traveler, we all traveled with the yellow international certificate of vaccination. And I just went to uh, Ethiopia and Guatemala, and I had to have that. A lot of us who just go to Europe and so on, we don't even know what that is. But that may be the norm in the future. You know, I think this is like the hot term in travel right now is vaccine passport. There are so many companies right now that are that have been working for months to figure out what a vaccine passport for the coronavirus looks like in 2021 and going forward. Um, I know like IBM is working on something. Common Pass is working on something. Some of the airlines are doing their own thing. I, I think we can expect to see something on that front. I think it's hard for them to standardize it at this point, right? Like there's so much yeah. that has to go into it. How do I make sure that my app shows that I have this vaccine and that's accepted in my destination country and it's got the right language on it and the QR code makes sense hmm. there. It, there's a lot of logistical stuff going on and there are a lot of privacy concerns that have to be addressed. And these companies are right now working on figuring so working all of on, that out. They're they are, yeah. Because you're, you're dealing with um, over 100 countries that have tourism wanting to come in and they have to have a, some sort of a standard policy so these certificates of vaccination can be just universally reliable. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with travel writer Tariru Muzuzewa. And she's our guest today, and she's spending the pandemic imagining our future travels and writing about it for the New York Times. Tariru, when we think about the cruise industry, it just seems like one part of the industry that's very impatient, um, and it's trying to start up and then having to pull back and trying to get it going again and pulling back. Uh, what do you think the future is for the cruise industry? That is a great question. Once again, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when all of this started, all eyes were on the cruise industry, right? Like we all remember those images of like ghost ships essentially sailing, unable to dock at any particular country. So there is a lot of interest in cruises. And I think a lot of major cruise lines had really hoped to restart cruising their itineraries, however altered in the earlier part of this year. But that's, you know, that has obviously had to be pushed back with cases rising mm -hmm. and things in the works with the vaccines. So I think there's a chance we'll see some cruises pick up travel in this first quarter of the year, but more likely than not, it just won't be again until the later half of the year. I'm impressed by how determined and resilient the cruise lines themselves are, but also how resilient their market is. There's a lot of people that are just hell-bent to go on a cruise ship. And um, I think, um, you know, as things settle down, they will probably not have a great year, but they'll probably still be in business. Another point that I find interesting is uh, how long until travel picks back up and where? I mean, we've got this issue of rich countries having access to vaccines whereas poor countries will be a couple years behind. I, I would imagine Europe will be vaccine-safe a year or two before Africa. Is that going to shape who's going to be going where in the future? I think it has the potential to shape that, absolutely, because if you want to go on a safari vacation, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than going to you know, a Mediter Mediterranean vacation. Um, so that is 
certainly something of concern. And I know that's something the World Health Organization is looking into as well. They really care about making sure that the vaccine can be distributed equitably across the world. That's a big challenge just from a justice point of view, because tourism is even more important in in the poor world than it is in the rich world. and, And this is a vital source of employment and revenue. How about the outlook for family travel? I mean, uh, you know, we we dream of having a trip with our grandparents or taking our kids on the road. Is that going to be impacted going forward? Family travel will be impacted, but I think, you know, we'll see like older travelers getting back out there first, most likely. Um, But, you know, it's family vacations, multi-generational trips are probably off the books for a while, right? Especially with kids not getting vaccinated. There's just the logistics of that are impossible. How do you get grandparents and parents and the grandkids who Mm -hmm. are probably all in different locations Mm -hmm. um, in a hotel together uh, while also being safe, not just about how everybody got there, but how everyone interacts once they've arrived. So I'm going to say off the books for a while on that one. So not off the books forever, but things will come back incrementally. And at first, perhaps uh, a young, healthy couple, one generation flying directly into London and having a week there and coming home, that's going to be a lot simpler than organizing a multi-generational, multi-transportation, multi-connection kind of trip. That will come further down the road. When we look at this, um, I would imagine people in the industry are looking for trends. You know, we've got workcations, flexcations, uh, schoolcations. Uh, what are all of these things? And what, what are people talking about and foreseeing? <laughs> well, I think we've seen an increase in global nomadism. Um, that's people relocating all over the world and working from places that are not their home. Um, and we'll continue to see that. I think a lot of businesses have realized that they can get the same amount of work done, uh, if not more without having to pay crazy rent on an office in one city that everyone has to show up to every day. Yeah, and that lets free spirits who have a job that lends itself to remote work be, uh, what do you call it, digital nomads. And even my my daughter, who's a school teacher, you know, she can do her school teaching and visit uh, relatives on the other side of the country and still do her school teaching because she is able to work remotely. And that can, you know, weave into people's vacations as we figure out what this world's going to be like for travelers going forward. Absolutely. And my favorite term, I wanted to hate it at first, but now I love it, is the vaccination. The vacation you go in, go on after you've gotten your vaccination. This is crazy <laughs> times we're in. This is crazy times. And if you think about lasting changes, I, I think about, you know, 9-11. It had a big impact on us, but we just really jumped right back into travel. But there were lasting impacts. I mean, security at airports, you know, before 9-11. I, I mean, in the old days, I remember wide open lobbies at airports and kissing my loved ones goodbye at the gate. Of course, now there's no wide open lobbies. It's filled with security apparatus. And you say goodbye to your loved ones at the curb. But an airport is still an airport and normalcy has returned, even though it's quite a bit different. Um, do you think there'll be similar kind of uh, new normals in post-COVID travel? I think everyone is going to continue to be obsessed with cleanliness and sanitization. There's just no going back on that one, right? Like the standard is just so high now that people just won't want anything less. Um, But I think, you know, more lasting changes will be, you know, a bit of something we talked about earlier, which are these flexible cancellation fees and companies just being more thoughtful and considerate to their customers, I hope. 
Right. Well, I mean, I would think the consuming public would demand that because there was a lot of consumers that were mistreated when COVID hit. And a lot of companies just jerked them around, didn't give them their refunds, give them sort of deceptive credits that they'd never be able to cash in on. And uh, I'm I'm hoping the industry has learned from that because the industry needs the trust of the consuming public. So we can we can hope for more flexibility. And as consumers, I think we should expect it. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tariro Muzuzewa, and she writes for the New York Times about travel, and she's been looking into what the pandemic is going to do for our future travels. And Tariro, I I was really um, enjoyed your take on the importance of fantasizing. You know, it's healthy. Go ahead. Fantasize. Think about where you're going to go when we can go. Uh, Let's just wrap up our our discussion with, with the importance of keeping our travel dreams alive fantasizing and thinking of my next big trip is something that has certainly kept me going through the pandemic. And just knowing that I can be patient and wait this time out um, and just dream up big trips. I'm always thinking about all the cute outfits I'm going to wear, all the friends I'm going to travel with. Uh, It gives me something to look forward to and just something to dream about. And we know that that psychologically does so much for people's spirits, um, that optimism and that sense of hope. I go to Europe all the time in normal times anyways, and I just love to crowd into the squares, the piazza where there's, it's the opposite of social distance. I love to stroll down the the pedestrian boulevard with all the locals licking my gelato. And in Rome, it's even called the struccio, which is the big rub. Everybody's rubbing against each other. I, I love to pack onto a, a, a shared uh, picnic bench and slide back and forth with those Germans in a beer tent and, and just clink glasses. And I love to go to a pub on the west coast of Ireland where, where everybody's singing together and where they say strangers are just friends who've yet to meet. That's our future, and I can fantasize for that. Um, what if, if, if you can just take one fantasy for your future travels? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to a pub and clink glasses in Ireland. What are you going to do when you can turn your travel fantasies into reality? Oh, my goodness. I'm going to New Zealand to see my brother, my sister-in-law, my niece, and my nephew. So there'll be some intergenerational travel in there because hopefully the grandparents can make it. (laughs) And I'll get to play with the kids and just enjoy this country that I've really wanted to visit for a long time. And I think it is realistic to expect that you will not give them a virtual hug. You'll give them a big giant New Zealand bear hug. Yes. All right. Tariro Muzuzewa, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thanks for helping us understand how this pandemic is impacting travel and that it is okay to fantasize and know that sooner or later, we'll all be on the road again. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure.
His father got to be known as Mr. Italy to New Yorkers for his commercials promoting his company's tour packages. Steve Perillo of Perillo Tours joins us next to compare notes on how our tour companies are weathering more than a year of pandemic closures and to share our hopes for how we'll all get started traveling again. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. This is a bad year for tour companies. So what do you do when you run a tour company and suddenly nobody's traveling? Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're joined by Steve Perillo of Perillo Tours to talk about how we who make our living in the travel industry are trying to stay afloat in these months of zero revenue during the global pandemic. Steve is joining us to discuss how the pandemic is hitting his industry and his expectations for the future. Steve, thanks for joining us. How are you holding up? Pretty good considering, Rick. Pretty good. You guys uh, have a a thriving tour company. You bring about, what, 15,000 people to Europe each year. You're the third-generation CEO of your family tour company, Perillo Tours. How was 2020 looking before the pandemic hit? It was going to be our best year since probably 1997. It was going to be a a very, very Mm. good year. We've been through uh, bad times. You know, it's not an essential purchase, a trip, so... uh, before 9-11, we had all kinds of stuff. Uh, if you're in the tour business, every 10 years, you're going to have a really bad year. But you lose half your business, okay. But 2020, uh, it was 100% a loss of business, which is astounding. We were euphoric in the tourist industry. We were queued up for our best years ever. The economy was so hot. Everybody wanted to travel. Everything was coming together. You know, And you ramp up for it. And then all of a sudden, bam. Not only do you have no revenue, but you've got a lot of people that have given you money and you have to give back refunds. How did you handle that? (laughs) That is the bane of every tour operator. That's how they go out of business. They spend the deposits before the trip. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to. uh, Ideally, you put it in escrow. You put it in a separate account. You don't touch it. And we touched it. But uh, my father taught me about the rainy day fund. And uh, it was millions and millions of dollars we had to return. Well, first, we asked people to postpone it to this year. And uh, a lot of them did. But now uh, we're facing March, April, and May. And uh, this time, they really do want their money back. And it's justified. So uh, we're returning all the money. And uh, we're not going to pay taxes for a few years, uh, I assume. And uh, we're going to be fine. I don't want to go through this again uh, in my lifetime, though. I don't really want to go through this. I don't again. either. So you're returning all the money, meaning you're not going to pay taxes because you've lost so much money that you'll have losses to take forward. Yeah, and I think under Obama 2010, uh, you could uh, deduct uh, losses for five years after the bad year. Right. Now, there's there's actually laws in some states that prohibit tour companies like ours from doing anything. And where I live in Washington State, we don't have that option. I mean, that money is protected until the tour is actually performed. And uh, at first, I didn't like that law, but I see I see the need for it, and uh, I'm, I'm yep. glad we have it now. It, it gives us a little guidance. I always think capitalism needs a chaperone, and that's what good government is all about. For sure, yeah. for sure. Uh, now, when you look at the industry in general, how do you think the industry did as far as relations and respect to their clientele? There were millions of people who were more than just inconvenienced by the advent of the pandemic when it comes to prepaid tour plans and so on. Well, we all wanted to, 
we all wanted to ask the customer, let us hold the money and we're going to uh, apply it to uh, next year or the next year. We're even going to give you some money off. Uh, and some of them didn't really have an option. Some of the cruise lines, they really, uh, you know, we're going to give you a credit for the future. But uh, we had whatever the customer wanted, uh, we did in this regard. So uh, we returned uh, the money in a lot of cases. And the goodwill is uh, amazing. And they're, they're going to come back to us for sure. That's it, the goodwill. I mean, we made a point of just not even letting people leave their money with us. Thank goodness we had the, the capacity to do bravo, that. But, bravo, bravo. We just sent, sent back 20,000 deposits and it took us months to do it. It was a lot of work. We're not geared up to send the money back, but that's what we had to do. Because as you said, we're in this together for the long term and uh, we got to take care of, of, of our public. Um, what do you think about the cost of canceling tours you had already set up as a tour organizer, though. Did you have to, did you take a hit by canceling out of buses you had arranged and hotels you had booked? Uh, not really. The uh, The hotels and the airlines were uh, considerate. You know, we were all in the same boat, so uh, yeah. So they were nice. They were nice. They worked with us. And after the whole uh, catastrophic advent of this for tourism, how did the insurance companies come out? Did they step up to the plate and help people? Or was the public generally satisfied if they had purchased, you know, trip interruption insurance? Or was this something that was not covered? Uh, it's not covered. They were tough. They were tough. I found them uh, really uh, not helpful at all, the insurance companies uh, in general. So they didn't, their reputation took a hit then after that because they didn't lose much money because of the pandemic. The people lost the money and the insurance companies did not. Right. And we had to make up the difference. Uh, if somebody, uh, uh, we have penalties if you cancel, but uh, this was a totally exceptional situation. So uh, I don't care. We're, I don't care about money. We got through it. It's all going to come back. You know, you got to be classy in this world. And, and you still got to be standing. You got to have your team together when, when yeah, we come out of this yeah. and we can ramp up again. So when I think of the long-term consequences of COVID and the pandemic, I'm concerned about the small mom-and-pop businesses, especially in Italy. That's your forte. Big companies can get through this pandemic. They can even profit from it. But it's the little moms and pops, whether it's the little museum or the, or the little restaurant or, or the little uh, hotel or guest house. What is your sense about what's going to be still standing when, when the clouds of this pandemic lift? I know a lot of restaurants are not going to be there. But the uh, Italian government, the European governments are a, a lot more generous with their uh, citizens. So uh, people still got their paychecks. Some of their paychecks were protected. I don't know all the details of uh, Italian uh, government law, but they're a lot more uh, helpful than America. But, you know, we have our, our strengths, too. Yeah. Well, they pay high taxes. And part of that is they expect their government to stand by them in a, in a time like this. Yep. It's uh, different from country to country, but in general, I think it's fair to say that small um, operations, mom and pops and so on, are, uh, have a good chance to get through this. But this uh, second year of this COVID, I don't know how long they can last, but that really is what makes travel so appealing, is not to have to go to a strip mall and buy from some international corporation, but you have that character. you got the local little entrepreneurial ventures and the people with a passion, and they love their clientele, and it's a joy to be part of that scene and it's a fun part of tourism, isn't it? The old crafts are still alive and well. You know, the glass, uh, inlaid wood is an amazing art. Mosaics are fantastic. We can surround these artisans with our groups right at the table and, and watch that happening. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're comparing notes on running a tour company in the middle of a pandemic right now with Steve Perillo. Steve's the third generation of his family that's run Perillo Tours. And they've been taking groups mostly to Italy from New York for over 75 years now. 
Their website is perillotours.com. So, Steve, when we come out of this, you've got your staff standing by. You've got your guides in Europe that are just kind of waiting for some work. You've got your clientele that wants to get on the buses. How are you going to know when things are stable enough to open up again? I think there'll be uh, an interim period where individuals will be able to go to Europe um, smartly, but uh, it'll be a little longer before we really have the predictable stability where we can have people gather together with a, you know, with a, with a group, with a bus, with a guide. How are you going to know when the time's right? We're counting on 2022. That's going to be April 2022. And we're going to start selling that in a few months, uh, Rick. So starting June, July, we're going to start getting deposits in. I uh, imagine it's going to be a lot. For this year, I'm ready for nothing to happen. But we're going to push villa rentals, which is a great way to travel uh, and to protect yourself uh, for individuals. And also we offer the, you know, the big bus tours. You can buy the same bus tour uh, for just a family of 12 uh, and pay just a little bit more and then have your own, uh, be in your own bubbles, your own tour guide, your own bus. Okay. And that's another way uh, to go, uh, the small groups. Uh, we're going to keep doing that uh, in the future years, the small uh, uh, personal groups. You know, just before COVID hit, we were starting to get our customers encouraging us to take a harder look at just hygiene on our buses and so on. And, and we were really enthusiastic about that. And now, of course, after COVID, everybody's going to go first class on, on hygiene when we're on cruise ships or on buses and so on. Uh, you talked about 2022, April being essentially back to normalcy. Do you think there will be any lasting impact on this pandemic on how you would take your groups around Europe? Uh, smaller groups, more safeguards, a different kind of itinerary, or is it just going to be just like it was in 2019? Yeah, I think it'll snap back to generally the way it was. The smaller group trend will be accelerated, I think, and the hygiene is important. I think we probably exaggerate that the whole world's going to change forever uh, mm-hmm. with these things, even with something like this. You know, 1918, uh, things probably returned feral uh, normalcy uh, in the 20s. What about the airline industry? Are you concerned that the airline industry will have a hard time getting to the point where you can have economic and convenient flights from many ports to many ports? It's going to be harder, especially they're going to lose business travel uh, because of the Zoom phenomenon. And uh, business class is what supports uh, a lot of the economics of these flights. They probably break even or lose money on coach, but business really pays the way for that flight. You know, I've never gone business class. And every time I walk through business class to get to the economy, I think, thank you guys for subsidizing my flight. I mean, I'm glad they're up there paying extra. And I'm also glad we can travel on on a much tighter budget in the back of the plane. Can I get you to go first class one day on some uh, Asian airline, Rick, please? <laughs> it's an amazing. It's a great experience. You'll do it once, right? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'm not opposed to being upgraded. I get upgraded uh, occasionally, but I've, I've never paid for it. Uh-huh. It's nice, I'm sure. We're comparing notes on running a tour company in the middle of a pandemic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Steve Perello from his home in northern New Jersey. His family company, Perillo Tours, has been operating group tours to Italy now for more than 75 years. Their website is perillotours.com. You know, so if we look at the long-term changes expected in the travel experience, I I think people are going to want more flexible payment plans and refund policies. A lot of people were were just jacked around when COVID hit last year, and I think that people are going to be reluctant to sign up for a some kind of travel unless it's explicitly flexible and not going to be expensive if something happens. What do you think? 
I think that's, uh, I didn't think of that, but uh, an outcome of this is going to be a kinder and gentler uh, penalty. You really can't uh, cancel a whole complex trip. You know, our trips have 60 different elements in them to cancel them all. Uh, there's got to be some uh, disincentive to do that. Yeah. But now, you know, you cancel three weeks before, we give you all your money back. We work with the hotels, we work with the airlines. And uh, if they participate, it's going to be much, uh, much better. Uh, yeah. It's too much, some of the penalties. Is Consumers have to know that there are reasonable penalties because it is expensive yeah. to set it up. And you can't just change, you know, on a dime. I think when we look at the long-term impact of COVID, I think people are going to be deciding to travel more closer to their departure times. And and I think that'll be a little bit different because people will be less sure about the future. I don't know, though. Yeah, a little wary about the, uh, man, I hope we got this virus thing down, this pandemic, because uh, it's going to happen again. Uh, yeah, I tell people you, you can't go through your whole life without without something like this, derailing things for a couple of years. You know, I'm 65, and this is the first thing that's happened in my life like that, but if I was born in 1900, I would have dealt with World War One, the Great Pandemic, the the Great Depression, and uh, Hitler in World War II. Um, we just have to be patient and take this in stride and realize that if we are patient and take care of each other and embrace science, we'll get through it and COVID will be in our rear view mirrors and we'll be traveling on. Uh, once we're able to travel again, what's the first trip you want to take once this COVID is history? Uh, I just turned 65. I'm getting my shot. I'm going to get another shot, and I'm going. And I'm going to be in front of the Vatican uh, in about a month, huh. and I'll wave to you. Oh. I hope. I hope this is, all comes to pass. I want to be the first one there. And you're going to head over there, come uh, pandemic or no, because you got the shot. I hope. I hope. You know, there's the the red, yellow, and orange uh, uh, zones, and uh, uh, Rome is still in a. I think it's an orange uh, orange zone right now. So that means you can't eat. You got to take out food and stuff. I hope that you have a good time. I'm going to be a little more patient. I'm going to just be. I'm going to employ my traveler's spirit here at home, and then uh, as as far as the tour company goes, I'm not going to be the first out of the gate. I'm going to wait until things are are really um, settled, and then. I'm going to return to my traveling ways with gusto. Great. All right, Steve. Thanks and, and best wishes. And uh, send me an old-fashioned postcard when you get there. I will do that. All right. Ciao. Ciao. Not traveling for the past year has given me more time to reflect back on what I've discovered and learned for more than 40 years of global travels. I've written about some of my favorite places, people, and travel stories in my latest book. It's called For the Love of Europe. Here's part of a chapter I wrote about the first time I encountered the mysterious prehistoric stone circles of Britain in a windswept field in Dartmoor. Mysterious Britain On my first trip to Dartmoor National Park, back when I was a student, word of the wonders lurking just a bit deeper into the moors tempted me away from my youth hostel at Gidley. I was told of an especially rewarding hike that would lead me to the mysterious Scorehill Stone Circle climbing over a hill surrounded by ominous towers of craggy granite, I was swallowed up by powerful, mystical moorland. Hills followed hills followed hills, green growing gray in the murk. Where was that 4,000-year-old stone circle? I wandered in a scrub-brush world of greenery, white rocks, eerie winds and birds singing unseen. Then the stones appeared. It seemed they had waited for centuries, still and silent, waiting for me to visit. I sat on a fallen stone, 
and my imagination ran wild, pondering the people who roamed England so long before written history documented their stories. I took out my journal, wanting to capture the moment, the moor, the distant town, the chill, this circle of stones. And at that moment, forty years ago, I dipped my pen into the cry of the birds and wrote. That experience, so long ago, kicked off decades of my fascination with mysterious Britain. Dartmoor, Stonehenge, the Holy Grail, Avalon, there's an endlessly intriguing side of Britain steeped in lies, legends, and at least a little truth. Haunted ghost walks and Loch Ness monster stories are profitable tourist gimmicks, but the cultural soil that gave us Beowulf, King Arthur, and Macbeth is fertilized with a murky story that goes back over 5,000 years, older even than Egypt's pyramids. With a little background, even skeptics can appreciate Britain's historic aura. There are countless stone circles, forgotten tombs, man-made hills, and figures carved into hillsides whose stories will never be fully understood. Britain is crisscrossed by lines called ley lines connecting these ancient sites. Prehistoric tribes may have transported these stones along a network of ley lines, which some think may have functioned together as a cosmic relay or circuit. Countless Neolithic wonders lurk in England's moors. While they inspire exploration, beware. You can get lost in these stark, time-past commons. Directions are difficult to keep. It's cold and gloomy as nature rises like a slow tide against anything human-built. A crumpled castle loses itself in lush overgrowth. A church grows shorter as tall weeds eat at the stone crosses and tilted tombstones. Over the centuries, the moors have changed as little as the long-haired sheep that seem to gnaw on moss in their sleep. One of England's wildest and most remote regions is in the southwest corner of the country. It's Dartmoor, that wonderland of powerfully quiet rolling hills that inspired me so long ago. Ordnance survey maps show that Dartmoor is peppered with bits of England's mysterious past, including more Bronze Age stone circles and enigmatic megaliths than any other chunk of England. It's perfect for those who dream of enjoying their own private Stonehenge without barbed wire, police officers, parking lots, tourists, or portaloos. Returning to Dartmoor on my last trip, I sat peaceful and alone on the same mossy stone I warmed the day I first experienced Score Hill Stone Circle in 1978. I recalled that day, at the age of 23, when I realized how many wonders in Europe were still undiscovered, hidden, and unheralded. I remembered how, hiking home that evening, I decided that my calling was to find these places and to share them. That was the day I became a travel writer. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Dada Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We had help this week from Steve Camerano and the BBC in London. The Ravenmaster tells us more about the women who now serve as yeoman warders at the Tower of London. You can hear it in a program extra. It's on our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.